Okay, with that, uh, open up your Bibles, Mark 4, I'm sorry, Mark 3, 14, and then Acts 4, verse 13. So Mark 3, verse 14, and then Acts 4, verse 13. You'll see the passage behind me and on your screen at home. This is God's word. And Jesus appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Okay, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. These are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, Lord. We thank you for that powerful time of worship. Lord, we worship you. Lord, we know from your word, worship means to lay our lives down. And so, Lord, we lay ourselves. We lay our agendas. We lay our concerns. We lay our desires, our goals, our plans down. And we bring them before you in worship, in worship. So Lord God, please, Lord, meet us. You're already here. You're you're already meeting us. But Lord, meet us now through the pages of your word. Father God, give us clarity of what you're doing in our midst. And Lord God, I pray and ask, Lord, today that you would draw us, draw us through your word, through this message to yourself, that we would be with you. So Lord God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so last week, we actually took a break from our sermon series, Disciple, and we did that so that I could make a very special announcement. Very exciting things are happening with our church leadership. I'm not gonna say what. You're gonna have to check out the message online if you missed it. I didn't wanna say what with no context. You're like, whoa, what's going on? (laughs) So go check that out if you missed it. But because of that, we took a break from our Disciple series. But today, I wanna go back to that sermon series, Disciple, And my hope is that this year, we will learn the answers to these questions from Scripture. But how can we be disciples of Christ, and how can we make disciples of Christ? It's very simple. But this year, that's the focal point of the entire year. We're not going to only talk about those things. We might talk about some other things. But that is the theme of this year. That is the focus point of this year. And more than just answering some questions, my hope is that this year, we would begin to engage in the discipleship process All of you, everyone here is invited into a process of becoming disciples and making disciples. And hopefully in the weeks to come, you're going to hear more about what this process looks like. So that is what we're looking at this year, but disciple. Now, what is a disciple? Most of you should know by now if you've been coming. Well, we've learned so far a disciple is a student, a follower, a follower of someone's teachings, their way of life. If you ever had an uncle who kind of showed you the ropes, right, and taught you some things, and then you learn how to be cool, right, with your high school friends, that, that is a part of discipleship. That's one form. But that is what a disciple is in Jesus' day. And being Jesus' disciple at the most basic level is simply that. Okay, I don't want to overly complicate anything, but it is being a student or follower of Jesus' teachings and way of life. Okay, that's what it means to be his disciple. But it's more than that, right? And here's where it can get a little bit more complicated. But Jesus was no ordinary teacher, amen? And he lived no ordinary life. 
And so being Jesus' disciple immediately, immediately confronts us with a reality that has nothing to do with this world. Okay, this is where discipleship to Jesus is unlike discipleship to anything else in this world. Okay, he's not like anyone else. And so the moment you attach yourself to him, or he calls you, I should say, and now you begin to listen to his teachings and you begin to follow him, boom, you're in a different reality. It starts with hearing his proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus burst onto the scene and he said, repent. In other words, change the way you think about your life and about God. That's what repentance means. Change the way you're thinking about your life and about God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here, right here, right now. And when he declared that, this was more than the ticket to heaven, but this was actually an invitation into an actual kingdom, a real kingdom where God is king, where he rules and reigns, where his will is acknowledged and obeyed. It is a complete utterly different reality from what we know. It's a kingdom where our way of life is flipped upside down and inside out. And the way we see reality itself is transformed. I know these sound pretty over-the-top words, but it's, I can't even overstate it. I mean, this isn't even describing a fraction of what it is. And so this is the kingdom of God. Jesus invites all of us into, and all of this is available to us as a free gift of God's grace through his life, death, and resurrection. And who are the vast majority of people who will hear this message and enter the kingdom? Who are the ones that Jesus calls to be his disciple? We looked at this two weeks ago. The nobodies, the unremarkable, the undeserving, the weak, the least, the people that nobody looks at, everyone overlooks in the world, these are the people, the majority of those who will enter the kingdom whom Jesus calls, follow me. And so for those of us who grew up in the church, this is very familiar, right? This is familiar territory. But I want you to take a step back today and just kind of think about it for a moment, how strange all of this really is, right? This is weird stuff. There is nothing about this that is intuitive or natural or a given. It's weird, right? It's strange. And being Jesus' disciple is the most bizarre and wonderful thing that you will do with your life. Again, I can't overstate that but it is by far the most bizarre and wonderful thing you will do with your life. Now, at one level, it's very just normal, right? It's simple, everyday, one foot in front of the other process. But as you begin to engage with Jesus, begin to be his disciple, he will take you to some of the most strange places you can imagine. I'm talking about a place where the last becomes first. Where the lower you go, the greater you become where your weaknesses actually become your strengths. The things that you just hate about yourself, you ignore, you overlook, you push down. No, that's exactly what I'm going to use. Where foolishness in the world's eyes becomes true wisdom. Where faith, even if your faith is as tiny as a tiny seed, barely visible to the eye, Jesus says you can move mountains. Where losing your life means saving your life. Again, if you grew up in the church, all this sounds very familiar, but just take a step back. And just see again how strange that is, right? This is weird, utterly bizarre. And yet this was Jesus' teaching. This was his way of life. You know, the German philosopher Nietzsche, and he was no fan of Christianity. He's the one who coined that phrase, God is dead. But when he said that, he was actually very concerned because he saw Christianity as very vital to Western civilization. But you know what he said? Nietzsche said, Jesus Christ is the strangest person who ever lived. 
<laughs> I thought it was a funny quote. But it's true, though. He's the strangest person who ever lived. But Jesus' strangeness wasn't stupid. You know, people who are just kind of weird to be weird, right? But it was brilliant. Why do I say that? It's because his teachings and way of life became the greatest force for good in this world. Again, I can't overstate that. And in fact, it has so thoroughly changed the world, starting with Western civilization, that it shows up everywhere and even in the least likely places. Have you guys studied U.S. history before? Some of you guys have? (laughs) How does the Declaration of Independence start out? The Declaration of Independence starts out, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, and when the founders wrote that, they really meant all human beings. All human beings are created equal. You're like, okay, yeah, that's true. I like what this one Indian philosopher, Mangawadi, but he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident? Self-evident to who? In other words, who is this obvious to? Who sees this as just given that all people are created equal? Because when I look around and I see all the people throughout the world, everyone looks utterly different, right? Everyone has different levels of intelligence, different levels of attractiveness, different levels of strength, different levels of morality. So people couldn't be more different. And Mangawadi, he said, in my society, in Indian society, they actually even made that permanent by setting up the caste system. So you're born into different castes, and now you're permanently different from everyone else. So how in the world could it be that the founders of this country declared, as if it's just obvious, we hold these truths to be self-evident, obvious, that all human beings are created equal? How can they say that? Well, here's the answer. Here's the real answer. You might not get this in school, but the real answer is they lived in a society that had been thoroughly saturated with the Bible and Jesus' teachings. See, Jesus changed the world. We're living in it. And he's changed us so thoroughly, we don't even recognize it. I said that a few weeks ago. It's the air we breathe. And so here's the point, but this is what I want to look at today. But being a disciple of Jesus before anything else means becoming connected to this person. Who am I talking about? I'm not talking about some religious figure. I'm talking about the strangest and most brilliant person who ever lived, who has transformed the world utterly to the point where you don't even recognize it's been changed because it's just a given now. This is who you're going to be connected to if you become his disciple. Becoming a disciple of Jesus at the most foundational level means spending time with him, this person, Again, the weirdest and most brilliant person you will ever meet and spending lots of time with him and spending time with others who have him. This is discipleship. And as you begin to do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get changed. There's going to be a soul revolution. See, to be with Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. And the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will be changed by Jesus. And this is exactly what we see in our passage in Mark 3, 14. But if you look there again, it says, And Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Now, when I read that uh, in the past, I wondered, okay, this is very interesting, but Jesus appointed the twelve to be with him, and then he sent them out to preach. And I wondered, is there a connection right there? I mean, it's not really obvious, but is there a connection between the disciples being with Jesus and then being, them going out to preach for Jesus? Is there a connection? And I wasn't really sure, because the connection isn't really clear here. But then I came across Acts 14. And then God answered my question. Acts 14, or I'm sorry, 413. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, in other words, when they heard them preaching the gospel, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, surprised, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. So right there, the connection is clear, right? Because they had been with Jesus, the most amazing individual to ever live, right? Weird, strange, bizarre, and yet brilliant. The son of God himself, they were transformed. That's why they were so bold. They were preaching the gospel to these religious leaders and to even leaders of nations. It's because they were with Jesus. So I love how the Bible does that, how things in one place are affirmed elsewhere. Things that are implied in one passage are made explicit in another passage. So the answer is yes. There is a direct connection between disciples being with Jesus all the time and then being transformed into ministers of Jesus, preachers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And so here's the important point I want us to understand today. But Jesus' method of discipleship was rooted in his presence. That's the starting point of discipleship that really begins to transform you. Yes, it begins with the proclamation of the gospel. I said that. But once you really engage in this process of discipleship, it's rooted in his presence. How did the disciples get changed by Jesus? The answer is by being with him all the time, continuously. And so this is what we see in Mark's gospel. In fact, all four gospels, Jesus ministered only for three years. That in itself is a miracle. He changed the world for 2,000 years after three years. But he ministered for only three years, and as his ministry moved into the second and third years, a shift happened, and you notice it if you read through the Gospels. But in the first year, he spent about equal time between crowds, a lot of different groups of people, and his disciples, equal time. But as soon as he moved into the second and third years, he increasingly focused only on his disciples. There was an unbalanced amount of time spent with his disciples. And then as his death began to approach near the end of his life, he spent almost all of his time with the disciples. All of his time. And that was not by accident, it was by design. It's almost like Jesus was clearing away all the theological and religious rule books that the rabbis used in his day to train their disciples. It's like he like cleared his desk of all of that stuff And he told his disciples, you know, there's only really one thing that's needed. Be with me. Be with me. And I am the word of God made flesh, and I will show you the word. I will teach you the word. I am the word, right? Be with me. Be with me. And so as they were with Jesus for three years, they traveled with him, ministered with him, they spent time with him, they were transformed. They were utterly transformed. And so I want to look at different ways that they were transformed by Jesus, but they were transformed in their thinking, their doing, and their wanting. And you see this in the Gospel of Mark as you just read on from chapter 4. So first, they were changed in their thinking. After Jesus appointed the 12 so that they might be with him, in the very next chapter, we see this. Mark chapter 4, 10 through 12. And when Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything, it's in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So here's another weird thing Jesus said. 
this is weird. And people, they don't pay attention to what Jesus says. And the reason is because most people, when they talk about Jesus' parables, what do they say? What have you heard pastors say about Jesus' parables? A lot of times people say, you know, Jesus used parables because stories make things clear. And so this is a great example. When we teach, when you share God's word, use stories because it makes things clear. That is not what Jesus said. Now, I agree, stories can help, right? They can make things clear, but that is not what Jesus said. What did he just say? He said, I use parables to confuse people. (laughs) Okay, right? That's what he said. I use parables to confuse people. He said, I speak in parables that they may see but not perceive, that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. What? Why? Why would you do that, Jesus? Didn't you come so that people would understand your teachings, repent, and be forgiven? Isn't that why you came? And yes, Jesus did come so that people would understand his teachings, repent, and be forgiven. Then why? Why why did he talk in parables to confuse people? Well, he told his disciples, I came so that you would understand these parables, so that you would understand my teachings and be forgiven then why use parables then to everyone else? Well, the reason why is because parables were like filters. And they filtered out people who were not willing to come to Jesus and follow Jesus. In other words, people who just really were just spectators. They had no concern to be with Jesus and follow him. And to those people, as long as they stayed in that place as spectators, they were never going to understand the true meaning of the parable. See, it filtered people out. It filtered people between spectators and true followers who actually want to be with Jesus. They want to know more. And to those who are willing to follow Jesus and be with Jesus, he said, to you are given the secret of the kingdom of God. Do you see that? I'm going to show you the true meaning of these parables. I'm going to explain what they really mean. So true knowledge of the kingdom and a transformation of our thinking comes down to our willingness to be with him. See, this is where the transformation of your thinking starts. It's more than just hearing a sermon, reading a Christian book, even reading your Bible here and there. But it it starts with this willingness to follow and be with Jesus. Robert Coleman, he wrote this classic book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. I think it's been in print for like 40 years. I have like a, a few copies at home. But he said to know was to be with. In other words, to know Jesus was to be with Jesus. It was by virtue of this fellowship with Jesus that the disciples were permitted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So what are we saying? If you want to understand Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God, if you want your thinking to be transformed by Jesus and his word, you need to do more than just show up occasionally and hear a sermon or read a Bible passage here and there as a spectator. But what we need to do is have a heart that wants to know Jesus and follow him. See, you hear it enough. You see enough. Even today, as you see Jesus so bizarre and yet so brilliant, and you're like, who is this person? Is he really the son of God? And you're curious and you want to know him. You're seeking after him. You want to be with him. And for a heart that prioritizes that, then for him or her, when you open the word, Jesus begins to speak. He begins to reveal himself to you. Then he will show to you the secrets of the kingdom of God, which are right here, written down in the pages of scripture. 
So please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about some kind of like secret Bible code or some information that only the super spiritual people have. No, everything Jesus wants us to know is right here, plain as day, in the pages of your Bible. But there won't be true understanding of, it, of what it really means without a heart that wants to know Jesus and follow him. So you've got to have that desire to be with him. So knowing Christ, even in his word, comes from being with him. And you know, I just want to say one thing about this. But I noticed over the years, whenever I talk to some of you, um, and a lot of people I've talked to, they're, they're no longer here. They've graduated, moved on. But I, I would occasionally ask people, uh, how are things going with your time in the word? And then they would say, yeah, um, it's okay. You know, I read this week or I didn't read this week. And I remember when I first started hearing that, thinking, oh, that's kind of new. <laughs> Growing up, people never talked about their quiet times or devotions in the word as just reading, right? I've never heard people just go, oh, yeah, I read, or I didn't read. Because when I was growing up, people would say things like, oh, I did my devos today. Or I met with God in the Word today. Or I spent time with God in the Bible today. But I don't remember people saying, oh, I just read, right, or I didn't read. And technically, there's nothing wrong with that, because that's what I'm asking, right? Did you read your Bible? And so they're just answering that. But if that is all people see their time with God as, Okay, I'm a Christian, so I should read the Bible, and the pastor's asking me, did you read? And yeah, I read. But if that's all it is, reading your Bible like another book, then I think that shows a lack of understanding. Because the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible is living and active, and it speaks to us in a very individualized way, Hebrews 4.12. And I'm not necessarily talking about a special insight God's going to reveal to you as you read your Bible or some you know, revelation that jumps off the page. That might happen. But even if it's just reading the Bible to understand the meaning of it, to read the sentences, to, to kind of understand what the author was saying, God is speaking to you, right? God is speaking to you through that. And so there needs to be an understanding that when I read the Bible, it's not like reading any other book. But there's an interaction that's happening between us and God. Okay, here's the point I'm trying to make. When you read your Bible, you're actually spending time with someone. With someone. So you can still tell me, yeah, I read or I didn't read, but, but please say it with understanding. What you really mean, right, is, yes, I read the Bible today and spent time with the living God. Right? Or I didn't read my Bible today and I didn't spend time with the living God. Because you are actually spending time with someone. And so I want to encourage you, as you read your Bible daily, pray before you do. And over the years, I've gotten into this habit, but Lord, speak to me today as I read your word. Speak to me. Lord, I want to know you more. Draw closer to me as I read your word. Because I recognize you speak to me through this. You're with me as I read the word. I'm meeting with someone. I'm actually meeting with you. So as we come with that kind of a heart posture to know Christ, to be with Christ, to follow Christ through his word, he will transform us. He will change the way we think. He will change the values we have. He will change the way we see our lives, the, we see, the way we see our relationships, the way we see the world around us. And it starts with our minds. And then from there, other things begin to change. So is that clear? But Jesus transforms us. As you begin to spend time with him, he will change us. And we don't have time to get into all the different details of the way he will do that, but, but he begins to really work. 
Like he'll prune. He'll bear fruit through the things we learn. He'll pour love into our hearts as we read scripture, as we pray. He will pour joy into our hearts. He will call his friends and reveal new things that we don't know. John talked about this in John 15, 1 through 15. But just that simple act of being with Jesus through his word and through prayer, all these things begin to happen. So everything begins to change. So this brings us to the next point. Being with Jesus also changes our doing. The things we begin to do change. So if you look at Mark 6, 7 through 13, this is just a few chapters later. But it says, Jesus called the 12 and began to send out the 12, two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So here Jesus is intentionally giving these disciples authority and responsibility so that they would do things for him, right? I mean, at the end, that's what he's doing. So he's doing that to train them, to develop them. So being with Jesus resulted in not only knowing things, but actually doing things. And so if you're around Jesus any amount of time, and you see this in the Gospels, then Jesus will begin to uh, call you to participate. He's going to get you involved, and you will begin to do things. So I love that about Jesus. But when you look at his ministry, his first miracle at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, what happened? A beautiful wedding took place. They ran out of wine. And so there was going to be a lot of heartache, a lot of shame and embarrassment for the host. And so Jesus did his first miracle. It was a very important miracle. It described his entire ministry. He turned water into wine, but he didn't just do it his own, on his own. He said what? You there, go get those clay, those huge clay vessels and fill them to the brim with water. And so all the servants began to do it and then they got a front row seat to this miracle. He got them involved. Later in the Gospels, when he fed the 5,000, what did Jesus do? When the disciples came and said, you know what, it's getting late, Jesus, we're in the wilderness, there's like thousands of people here, not just 5,000, but 10,000, right? 5,000 was just the number of men. You add women and children, 10,000 plus people are here. And Jesus is like, yeah, you feed them. You feed them. So they went and found a boy's lunch. Uh, we have five loaves and two fish. Peter's like, I can eat this, right? But nobody else. I mean, how are we going to feed everybody? And Jesus is like, you pass it out to everyone. And then as they obeyed, the miracle happened. It just never went away. It just wouldn't run out. That basket with the loaves and the fish, it just kept coming out until all 10,000 plus people were fed. And then at the end, the disciples went around and gathered everything into 12 full baskets. And so they had a front row seat. So do you see that? Jesus always gets us involved. So Jesus had relationships with intentional development in mind. He, Jesus always has that. And that's because he knew people who will follow him require training. And here's why. The goal of discipleship is to live your life as Jesus would live it if he were you, according to one Bible teacher. But that is the goal of being a disciple, is to Get to a place in your life where you're going to begin to live your life as Jesus would live it if he were you. Here's another way to say it. The goal of a disciple is to eventually do the things Jesus would do on the spot from the heart. 
So suddenly your roommate says something that's very annoying. If you're a disciple, you're going to get to a place where you're on the spot, from the heart, you're going to do exactly what Jesus would do. Make sense? Suddenly you lose your job. On the spot, as you're getting fired, you would do from the heart what Jesus would do. That's the goal. And so this takes a lot of grace, a lot of the Spirit's power, but you know what else? Training. You need training. And unfortunately, so many Christians don't understand that. You know, I've talked about this before, and we're going to look at this a lot more in the weeks ahead. But so many Christians do not understand this element of the Christian life, that you actually need training, and it's a rigorous training. And so they approach their Christian lives with this kind of magical thinking, that as long as I'm a Christian, and I'm kind of around Christian things, doing you know, Christian things with Christian people, then somehow I'm going to become a better Christian, and I'm going to grow in my spiritual life. And if you were to think about it for a moment, you know what? That kind of thinking does, does not make any sense in any other area. Okay, whether it's learning a musical instrument, whether it's playing a rigorous sport and trying to get onto a team. I mean, it doesn't work in any other area. And the reason why is because no matter how much you imitate somebody who's playing that sport that you want to play or is able to play the violin that you want to play, if you don't have the same training, Right, you can dress like them, you can like, you know, have the same expressions. I mean, you can act exactly like them, but if you don't have the training that they have, you will never do what they're able to do on the spot when it counts. And that's what a disciple does. But on the spot in your life when it counts, you're able to be just like Jesus. Why? Because not only do you have the grace of God and the spirit of God working in you, but you have had training. And at times rigorous training. And so when you look at the Apostle Paul, this is exactly what he repeatedly said. I am what I am by the grace of God, but I have worked harder than all of you. And I have subjected myself to rigorous training. He said, I beat my body and I'm making my slave. I run the race as if one who will win. I don't get caught up in civilian affairs. I am a soldier for Christ. I mean, look at all this imagery. I mean, this is rigorous stuff, right? I'm a soldier. I'm an athlete. I'm a farmer. I'm a runner. I'm in training. And why was he so focused on that? Because he knew. If I try to be like Jesus on the spot when it counts, I'll never do it without this kind of training. And so being made new in Christ, having his grace is not enough. And this is why so many Christians, yes, they are truly born again. They come to church and they kind of have this magical thinking, okay, if I kind of just come to church and just kind of, hang around Christian things and do Christian things, and I'm just going to, poop, I'm going to be like Jesus. And unfortunately, it never happens. So for the Apostle Paul, he rigorously adopted Jesus' way of life, in public and private. Things like solitude, spending time with God, prioritizing that. Early in the morning, Jesus would go out and spend time with God, the Father. Prayer, fasting, simplicity, living a simple life, denial, of basic things that even at times, like fasting, right? He went into the desert, fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, in order to draw closer to God. A life of giving, a life of service. Okay, all these different things. Paul said, I'm in training. I'm in training. And as he spent time with Jesus and learned the way of Jesus, what happened? His soul was revolutionized. That's how he changed. His thinking, his feeling, his acting, all of it was restructured. 
And so this is the same training that Jesus is inviting all of us into if we're going to be disciples. And as you spend more and more time with him and other people who have him, this is what's going to happen. And God willing, in the weeks ahead, as we talk more about our discipleship process, as we begin to unveil that, uh, this is what we want to call people into is, is let's do this, guys. Let's spend time with each other and with Jesus and get into this training and exercise the spiritual disciplines together. And so this is a training that is necessary. It's not to earn, but it's to become. Okay, become like Jesus. So we'll talk a lot more about this in the weeks ahead, but th- that's another way he changes us, amen, as we're with him. And then finally, being with Jesus brings change to our wanting, to our wanting. So if you look at Mark 8, now just go a little bit further. See, we're just walking through the gospel of Mark. Jesus makes this clear. And then Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Now in the ESV, it's not very clear, but that word would, in the Greek, thelo or thele, is really wish, desire, want. Other translations have that word want or desire. If anybody wants to follow me or come after me, if any desires, if anyone desires to come after me. But that's what it means, wish, want, or desire. And so here, Jesus is pressing upon the deepest part of a disciple's heart. He's really pressing upon the core, at the bottom of our hearts. And what I'm talking about is our desires, our wants. That is the deepest part of who we are. Perhaps the Bible's deepest insight into the human being is that we all desire something in the depths of our hearts. That's from scripture. That's not from a psychology book. But that is the unique insight of the Bible into human beings. So the most direct, effective question you can ask anybody to get to know them, if you ever meet somebody, here it is. What do you want? What do you want? Another way to say it is, what do you love? And so if you know somebody and they're struggling with sin and you're like, gosh, how do I help them? Here's a very, very simple way to get started. Here's a tip. Just ask them, what do you want? See, I see you struggling. I see the sin in your life, and you're struggling. You know it. What is it you want? And pay attention to the answer they give you because you're going to find out what is operating at the deepest part of their heart. But unfortunately, sometimes it's so deep, we don't even know, right? We don't even know what is down there. But this is the inside of Scripture. Is it is down there, and this is what is causing all the behaviors in our lives, our desires. Theologians have even pointed out that the deepest problem with the world is that non-believers are under the complete control of their desires. Okay, why does the world look the way it looks? It's because the world is utterly under the slavery of their desires, whether they're good or bad. Bible scholars have also pointed out the fundamental problem underneath all of our sins is we have wants and desires that are out of order. So some of these wants are evil things like having sex outside of marriage, wanting to be the best in the the focus of everything, or it could be something good like wanting people's respect, wanting to actually do something for God. But once these desires grow out of bounds, once they become stronger than our desire for God, then there will be sin. There will be sin. David Paulison, he was a theologian and a biblical counselor, really, really good. He already passed away a big loss. But he said the New Testament repeatedly focuses on the lusts of the flesh as a summary of what is wrong 
with the human heart that underlies bad behavior. So in the New Testament, it keeps bringing up this thing, the lust of the flesh. And we're not just talking about sexual lust. It's just talking about desires that are so powerful, they're out of bounds, like a river that has spilled over the banks. But these lusts of the flesh, that is the summary of what is wrong with the human heart that underlies bad behavior. And so our spiritual lives deal with more than our wants and desires, but at the very bottom of our hearts, you will always find wants and desires driving our spiritual lives. Okay, that's why you're not wanting God right now. That's, not, that's why you're you know, maybe like kind of drifting away from God or you're not pursuing the things of God is because there are these powerful wants and desires deep down in your heart. So these are very powerful. They set the very course of our lives and oftentimes, like I said, we don't even know they're there. They're almost primal. They're animal-like. This is why when you ask somebody, you know, occasionally you might ask somebody, you know, why, why are you doing that? Why is that so important to you? A common answer is, I don't know. I just want to, right? right? I, I don't even know. I, I just do. And so these desires, they control us, and they are too strong. They are too deep. We can't escape these desires until we're with Jesus. So this is another foundational way he begins to change us but when you begin to understand and see Jesus and you come to him as you are with him day in and day out you know what happens his love begins to pour into your heart and you have different desires begin to grow and all these other desires they begin to weaken so they don't burn right as much I've shared this example before but it's kind of like a jar with the candle inside and these are the desires burning at the bottom of your heart and then the grace of God and the love of God is like water being poured into the jar. And little by little, as the water gets higher and higher, that candle goes out. It begins to weaken and it goes out. So this is what happens inside the heart of someone who becomes a true Christian. Okay, this is the true believer. This is the true disciple. So who is the true Christian? It's not someone who just goes to church. It's not someone who even studies the Bible. It's not even someone who serves other people. Because somebody can do all those things and not be a true Christian. Then what is the true Christian? The true Christian is somebody who sees Jesus and puts their faith in him and wants to be with him to the point where his love begins to flow in your life. You see the end of his love upon the cross. And because of that, now that begins to change your heart. And that's why the Bible talks so much about your heart changing, right? I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. So this is the true Christian. So Paul, again, he says the exact same thing in his own words. But he says in Romans 3.23, the biggest problem that human beings have is that we don't want God. Right? This is the reason why we hurt people. This is why we, we look the way we look. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. In other words, no one desires God. See, that's the basic problem in the human heart. But Jesus can change it. He can change it. So I think this is a good place to end, but I want to close with our desires. I want to focus in on those desires, but let me ask all of you. Okay, this is the quickest way to get to a person's core, right? But what do you want right now? If somebody were to come to you, if I were to come to you after church and just sit down with you and I would ask you just, you know, honestly in your heart, what do you want right now? Deep down, what is it you want? Is it Jesus? Is it to be with him, to know him, to spend time with him? Because we all want something.
And not only do we all want something, but in fact, we're all doing something with God, actually. Here's another quote from David Paulson, but he said, people are always doing something with God. Human beings are either love, either love God or they despise God and love something else. We take refuge in God or flee from God and find refuge in something else. We set our hopes in God or we turn away from God and hope in something else. We fear God or we ignore him and fear something else. See, whether you acknowledge it or not, we are always doing something with God. And so depending on what you want deep in your heart, you have a posture towards God. You're either going away from him or you're turning towards him. You're either fleeing from him or you're pursuing him. So what is it you want? Is it Jesus? So as we, in the weeks ahead, look more and more at what it means to be a disciple, that is the beginning point of all transformation, is your answer is yes, I want him. Amen? I want him. And so let's just come before the Lord right now. And the beautiful, beautiful thing is Jesus said, it is better for me to go because if I go, then I will send the comforter, the parakletos, the counselor, the helper to you. And who is that? It's the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it is better that I go away because if I go away, then I will send the Spirit to you. And then now, because of the Spirit, you can always be with me. Anywhere you are, anywhere you go, you can be with Jesus. Right now, in this moment, you are with him by the Spirit. Later today, as you go from here, you can be with Jesus. And so again, I ask you, what do you want? What do you want? Lord Jesus, we just come before you, Lord, and God, I... I know that even in my heart at times, oftentimes, the answer to that question is, I don't want you. Right now, I don't want you. And I want something else more than you. And that's sin in your eyes. It's idolatry. And that alone is enough to cast me under your judgment. Lord, because of you, your life, death, and resurrection, there is no more judgment. And so, Lord God, even if I am wanting something else more than you, and I'm bowing to an idol, I can come to you right now and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I want you again. Help me to want you again. So Lord God, you made it clear. Being your disciple doesn't even make sense if we don't want you and we don't want to be with you. We can't be your disciple. We're not your disciple. It doesn't even make sense. Discipleship makes no sense. So Lord God, help us to just come before you in honesty right now. Do I really want Jesus? Do I want him? More than anything else in my life, And if you do, it needs to show. It's going to show through sacrifice, right? You sacrifice all kinds of things in your life for the things you want that are not Jesus. Don't you? 
you'll sacrifice sleep, energy, food, time with friends. You'll sacrifice anything and everything for something that you want. So when's the last time you wanted Jesus that badly? So Lord God, please help us, Lord, help us. Even this, Lord, we are so weak. Give us that desire. The core of our hearts. We can fake a lot of things. We can fake actions, serving, even showing up to a Bible study and saying things about the Bible. All that can be fake. But one thing we can never fake are the desires deep in our hearts. We can't fake that. That's just there. I just want that. So, Lord God, do the deeper work in us. Do the deeper work in us, God. Change what we fundamentally want. So, Lord God, thank you, Lord. We want to be with you. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just continue in a mode of prayer. We're going to just come before the Lord. So, listen. ask him to change our hearts you can even confess confess your sins before him confess your lack of desire let's just come before him thank you Lord Jesus